0: It's wonderful to be with you again. Thank you for the invitation. I want to begin with a little story about Sir Alec Guinness, one of the most famous British actors, died a number of years ago. Those of you who are a little bit older remember him from The Bridge on the River Kwai. I remember watching that movie with my dad. It was one of his favorites. Those of you closer to my age know him as Obi-Wan Kenobi from the original Star Wars trilogy. And I don't like to even mention the other Star Wars trilogy because I want to pretend it doesn't exist. But he had this really fascinating story in his autobiography that I came across a couple of years ago, a strange event that occurred while he was walking through London. He wrote this, I was walking up Kingsway in the middle of an afternoon when an impulse compelled me to start running. With joy in my heart and in a state of excitement, I ran until I reached a little church there which I'd never entered before. I knelt, caught my breath, and for ten minutes I was lost to the world. This event happened not long after Guinness had finished his journey from atheism to faith in Christ, and in his autobiography he went on to try to explain what had motivated him to just start sprinting through the streets and run into this church, and at the end he concluded that, quote, it was a rather nonsensical gesture of love. The fact that it didn't make sense, there was no rational reason behind his behavior makes it that much more beautiful, that much more pure. And I start with that story because I know you've been in this series talking about a church to die for or what are the marks of a truly great church. But when you frame it that way of what kind of church would you die for, what kind of church would Christ die for, you're way beyond the realm of rationality. You're talking about an issue which does not just engage the mind. This is a heart issue, a nonsensical thing. I'm sure if I were to ask you what would you die for or who would you die for, you're not going to give me rational answers. You're going to give me emotional ones. My family, my children, my community, or an idea that is so passionately held that it defies reason. The things that motivate us most in life, that drive us, that make us sprint through the streets nonsensically, are not rational. They're not logical. They hit us at a far deeper level. Blaise Pascal, 17th century philosopher, said this, We know the truth not only through reason, but also through the heart. The heart has its own reasons of which reason knows nothing. We see that kind of nonsensical knowledge in the early church in the book of Acts. They did a number of things, those first Christians, that didn't make a lot of sense, certainly couldn't be rational. They did things like they defied social structures. They gathered together as Jews and Gentiles, which was absolutely taboo for thousands of years. They, they broke down those barriers and shared meals together despite the social cost. They gathered regularly in one another's homes and were told that they gave generously. They sold their property and they gave away their wealth to those who had needs. There was no rational reason to do this. No good reason that one could argue for. It was nonsensical. It was a gesture of love. And so it is true to this day that wherever the Spirit of God has been mightily poured out on a people, wherever a church has been formed in the name of Christ... A people that live in deep communion with Him, they do irrational things, nonsensical gestures of love. The fact that we gather in a place like this and sing our hearts out with people we don't know very well, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Why do we do it? Because it's a gesture of love to our God who has redeemed us. Same goes with generosity and giving. In a world where we feel there's a scarcity of resources in which we must protect ourselves, it doesn't make sense to give away wealth. It makes much more sense to retain it, to keep it, to hoard it. Why should we give it away? You know, when we start talking about money, just as North American people, as even Christians today, when we talk about money and giving, we immediately kind of shut down the heart, and we go immediately to the mind. What makes sense? What is rational? And some of us just shut down in the church. I've been in ministry long enough to know that this, is, this topic is harder for people to talk about than sex. It really is. And it tells you how, how intimately connected we are to our money. But what I want to do today is help us realize that as rational as we are about money and wealth in our culture, that what God cares about is our hearts. And that generosity is not a matter of rationality. It's a matter of a heart who's been powerfully impacted by God and therefore responds by giving in nonsensical ways. So to do that, we're going to look at Actually, a story in the Old Testament, a number of stories from the book of Exodus. If you have a copy of the Scriptures, I encourage you to turn to Exodus. We're going to kind of be moving through this book and looking at a number of different stories. We'll be focusing around chapters 32, 35, 36. But I want to put the story into its broader context. You've got to know what led up to the details. The opening chapters of Genesis finds God's people slaves. They're in the wealthiest, most powerful empire on earth. They're in Egypt. But they share in none of that power and none of that wealth because they are captives. They are enslaved people. They are forced to build palaces and cities and temples for the Egyptians at the end of a whip. They're persecuted, mistreated. And then if you know the story or you watch the Ten Commandments over the years, you know that God sends Moses to rescue his people from Yule Brenner, right, from Pharaoh, from... I like bald actors. Um, So Moses leads his people out of Egypt, and God rescues them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, all those amazing miracles and the plagues that he sends upon the Egyptians. But one of the details in the story that we don't often think about, happens in chapter 12, is that before the Israelites leave Egypt, God displays both his justice and his sense of humor because he allows the Israelites to pillage the Egyptians. The Egyptians are compelled to give to their slaves their wealth. And so when they leave Egypt in chapter 12, we read that these slaves take with them cartloads of gold, silver, jewels, and expensive fabrics and clothing. I mean, these people had been living in squalor for centuries. They'd been forced to make bricks with no straw, right? Just horrible labor. They were beaten. They were completely deprived of all human enjoyment and luxuries, and here they are taking from their masters all of their wealth and walking out of town with it. This is a theme you see again and again in Scripture where God reverses things. The first become last, the last become first, the wise become fools, the fools become wise, and here God is sticking it to where the rich become poor, the poor become rich. But God has an agenda for this wealth that he's giving to his people, and we'll get to that in a minute. So they follow Moses out into the wilderness of Sinai, and they eventually come to the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. And again, if you remember the story, the presence of God falls upon this mountain in a mighty way. The mountain trembles as dark smoke billows from it, and the, the fury and the terror and the awe and holiness of God is there. And then Moses goes into the cloud at the top of the mountain to meet with God. And the people are terrified. They can't go anywhere near the mountain. They're told if they touch the mountain, if their animals touch the mountain, if anyone touches this mountain, they'll die. So the Israelites have to stay back and they just watch their leader head up into this cloud. And Moses doesn't come back. Hours go by, then days, then weeks, and they hear nothing from Moses. So they start wondering is he dead? Did he survive? Where is he? What, What are we supposed to do here? And then people start to grumble. What on earth are we doing out in the middle of nowhere with this ferocious God on this mountain with no leader? Maybe we should go back to Egypt. Maybe we should go somewhere else. Maybe we should find a different God. And then in Exodus 32, in the midst of this uncertainty, the Israelites do something rather foolish. So I want you to turn there. Exodus 32, verse 1. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graven tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel. There's a couple details in this story I want you to notice. First, are those earrings, those gold earrings. Where did they come from? The Israelites did not have gold earrings when they were slaves in Egypt, slaves didn't have gold. So where did they get it? This was part of the wealth that God had given to them from the Egyptians when they left. They had taken this wealth that God had given them and now they turned around and made an idol out of it. See the irony of that? This God who had rescued them from slavery, from injustice, from all the horrors of Egypt, this God who is now with them on this mountain they turned around and began to worship the gifts that this God had given them. The second detail, why do they make a golden calf? Well, you've got to remember where these people had come from. They had lived all their lives, in fact, for generations they had been in Egypt. And Egypt was a nation of idolatry, a nation that worshipped gods that were made of gold and silver and stone and wood. And so here's what appears to have happened. The Israelites are gathered around this mountain, this God who had rescued them they hadn't heard anything from, Moses, the prophet of God who had led them they hadn't heard anything from, and so they, in that vacuum, kind of revert back to the ways of Egypt. Let's just return to what we know, a God that we can see, a God that we can hold, a God that we make ourselves. They just went back to what the Egyptians had done, the culture that they were familiar with. So, They take the gifts of God, and they worship the gift rather than the giver, and then they fashion an idol out of it, just as their culture had taught them. In 1966, Walt Disney was absolutely consumed with a vision. He had built Disneyland in California. I think that opened in 1955, and now he got kind of fixated on the problems facing urban centers around the world. And he developed this idea which he called his experimental prototype community of tomorrow. You know it as Epcot. But in Walt's mind, Epcot was an entire city Where there would actually be residents, thousands of residents, and there would be a city center and a town hall and skyscrapers and hotels and shopping malls and sports arenas. He had planned out the entire city and where all the neighborhoods would be and where the schools would be. He even planned there to be churches. He had the details figured out to the point where he knew exactly how all the garbage would be collected. And he was ready to act and actually build the city. He went to Florida and, using actually former CIA operatives, secretly bought up 47 square miles of Florida wilderness where he was going to build his Epcot, his city of the future. In the very last film Walt Disney ever made, he unveiled his plans for Epcot. He revealed all the details that he had figured out and actually laid out a schematic of the city. And then, quite suddenly and unexpectedly, he died. And the leaders of the Walt Disney Corporation had a problem on their hands. They had 47 square miles of Florida, and they had this crazy idea to build this utopian city, and they didn't share Walt's vision. They didn't know how to do it. So they kind of did what the Egyptians did, or the Israelites did, is they, they ran back to what they understood. So first they built a facsimile of Disneyland the Magic Kingdom down in Florida. But then they knew we can't just completely abandon Walt Disney's dream of this Epcot thing. And so the chairman of the Walt Disney Corporation was asked at one point, well, are you ever going to build this Epcot thing that Walt envisioned? And and the president of Disney said this, that Epcot was now being reconsidered from the point of view of economics, operations, and market potential. And so 16 years later, they finally opened Epcot. And what is it? It's a theme park. It's not a city. There's no churches. There's no schools. There's no sports arenas. There's no residences. It's a theme park. So they had this glorious vision, but they lost sight of it, and they ran back to what they were familiar with, and the managers of the Disney Corporation said, well, we know how to do theme parks, so we'll just take Walt's vision and make it into that. This is what happens when a people lose vision. Vision. They run back to what's familiar. The Israelites had lost the vision that this God who rescued them had to make them into His own people, a glorious people, unlike the Egyptians. And when they lost sight of that God, when they lost sight of that vision, they ran back to the idolatry of Egypt. When we lose sight of God, we do the same thing. First, we take the wealth that He has given us for His purposes and we make an idol out of it. We worship our wealth. We believe that in our wealth we will have security. In our wealth we will have status. In our wealth we will have comfort. In wealth we will have health and success and all the things this world can offer to us rather than in God. And secondly, when we lose sight of God we run back to the cultural values that we're familiar with. The reason why I think Christians in North America statistically don't give more than anyone else is because we are essentially like the Israelites running back to Egypt. We don't have a ravishing vision of God and so we exhibit the values of the culture we know. A culture that is not generous. A culture that is self-consumed. A culture that worships its wealth. We have to remember that in all of these conversations about a church to die for, the marks of a great church, it all begins with one thing. The first and highest calling of the church is to give to its people and to the world a ravishing vision of who God is. Because when a people see this God clearly, when they see His goodness and His power, His justice, His love, and His grace, they will not go back to the world they knew. So with that story of the golden calf in mind, I want to jump ahead a couple chapters to Exodus 35 because just a few chapters later, we see an incredibly different community. Moses comes down from the mountain eventually. Of course, he gives him the Ten Commandments and we'll get into what happens there in a minute. But he also comes down from this meeting with God with instructions for the for the construction of a, a temple, a, a tabernacle. It was an elaborate tent where God's presence would dwell among the Israelites. And as they moved throughout the wilderness, they would take this tent with them and reconstruct it, and it would be the center of their worship and the offerings and the presence of God. It was known as the tabernacle. And after delivering the plans for this tabernacle, Moses then asks the people to make a contribution, to give. They weren't under any obligation. They weren't forced to give. They were invited to give. They were invited to give the various uh, tangible resources necessary to build this tabernacle, the, the fine cloth and fabric, the gold, the silver, the wood, those sorts of things. And so after being invited to give, the Israelites respond in Exodus 35. I'll begin reading in verse 21. "'Everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him came and brought the Lord's contribution.' Verse 22, Then all those, all whose hearts moved them, both men and women, came and brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and bracelets, all articles of gold. So did every man who presented an offering of gold to the Lord. Every man who had in his possession blue and purple and scarlet material and fine linen and goat's hair and ram skins dyed red and porpoise skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver and bronze brought the Lord's contribution, and every man who had in his possession acacia wood for any work of the service brought it. All the skilled women spun with their hands and brought what they had spun. Verse 29, The Israelites, all the men and women, whose hearts moved them to bring material for all the work which the Lord had commanded through Moses to be done, brought a free will offering to the Lord. Now, I want you to jump ahead to chapter 36. Verse 3. And they still continued bringing to him freewill offerings every morning. And all the skillful men who were performing all the work of the sanctuary came, and they said to Moses, The people are bringing much more than enough for the construction which the Lord has commanded us to perform. So Moses issued a command, and a proclamation was circulated throughout the camp, saying, Let no man or woman any longer perform work for the contributions of the sanctuary. Thus the people were restrained from bringing any more. Now, think of the contrast here between what happens when Moses asks them for a free will offering for the construction of this tabernacle versus what we read a few chapters earlier in 32 when Aaron asked them to contribute something for the creation of this golden calf, this idol. Remember, Aaron said, give me your earrings, just this little bit of gold. And it wasn't a free will offering. He forced them. He said, take it from every one of your children, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and give it to me. It was a forceful expectation that they give something to this idol. Here, Moses says, you don't have to give anything. It's a free will offering. You're under no obligation. But if you want to, please. And they start bringing it and bringing it and bringing it more and more and more to the point where the workmen are like, we have too much. Stop. They have to be commanded to stop giving. Now, where was this coming from? Where was all this gold and silver and fine fabric coming? They're in the wilderness of Sinai. I don't know if any of you have been to the desert in Sinai, but there's not a whole lot of gold and silver and porpoise skins lying around in the desert, right? This was all the loot that they had taken from Egypt. This is all the stuff they had carried with them. So let me paint the scene for you of what's happening here. Moses gives this free will invitation to contribute. Mr. and Mrs. Hebrew decide, okay, yeah, we'll give a little something. They go to their tent. They look around at all their great stuff from Egypt, and they pick a couple things out, a little silver, a little gold, nice fabric. And they come in the morning, and they bring that to Moses and the workmen. And then they go back to their tent, hanging out in the evening, and they decide their heart is stirring them. And they look around, and they go, you know, we still got some nice stuff around here that we really don't need and they gather up another collection of it. And the next morning they come and bring more. And then they go back to their tent that night. And I don't know why, but their heart stirs them again. And they look around and they decide to take more of their possessions and bring it the next morning. And the point I'm trying to make here is that it's not being replenished. They're not digging more precious jewels or gold or silver out of the mountains in Sinai. This is not a health and wealth gospel kind of thing where it's like, hey, you know what? If we give to Moses a tenth of what we have, we're going to come back to our tent later that night and God's going to bless us with even more. There's no replenishment. There's no return on investment. This is not a shrewd, calculated, logical kind of giving. They just keep giving more and more and more and what's in their tent is becoming less and less and less because as we read over and over and over again in those verses, their hearts were stirred within them. This is nonsensical. A nonsensical gesture of love. You know, like I said earlier, when we think about money and even when we think about giving, we think rationally. What am I getting for what I'm giving? When we give to the church, well, do I like the preaching? Do I like the music? Do I like the programming? Am I getting enough? from this church. Am I getting enough from the staff? Am I getting enough from the ministries? Because if I'm not, then I'm not going to give. Or if I'm getting a lot, I'll give a lot. It's a transactional kind of thing. There's nothing transactional about what's going on here in Exodus. There's no sense of, well, if I give this, I'm going to get that. Or if Moses does this for me, I'll do that for him. That's not what's happening. This is not logical. This is not rational. It is nonsensical. They're giving because their hearts are stirred. Now, here's the million-dollar question. What happened between Exodus 32, where they give just an earring to an idol, and Exodus 35 and 36, where they actually have to be restrained from giving anymore? What changed in these people? Well, to answer that, we have to go to the middle chapter 34, when Moses came down from the mountain the first time and he sees them with the golden calf, again, if you know the movie, the images are just seared into my mind. Charlton Heston throws the tablets down, you know, there's this wrath, everything goes down. The Israelites know that they have rebelled against this God. They have rebelled against the God who rescued them from Egypt, and the Israelites fully expect that this God, this thunderous God on this mountain is going to do to them what he did to the Egyptians. They expect to be destroyed. But in Exodus 34, we read this amazing account of when Moses goes back up to meet with God. It says, "...the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with Moses as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord..." The Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. And then Moses said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray. Let the Lord go along in our midst even though the people are so obstinate and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as Your own possession. So the God who rescued them passes before Moses, declares His character, compassionate, slow to anger, forgiving. And Moses, hearing this and seeing the character of God, risks Everything by asking God to forgive the people for their idolatry. Notice that Moses says our iniquity and our sin, even though he had no direct part in it. He's representing the people before God. Forgive us, we're idiots. And then the Lord responds in verse 10 Behold, I'm going to make a covenant before all your people, I will perform miracles which have not been produced in all the earth nor among any of the nations, and all the people among whom you live will see the working of the Lord. That's a long way of God saying, yes, I will forgive them. I will still be their God, they will still be my people, and I will dwell and work among them. So after this, Moses comes down from the mountain. The people see the radiant glory of God on his face. They're terrified. And Moses explains to them that God has forgiven you. He has been gracious to you. And then he gives them the instructions about the tabernacle and invites them to give. Why do they give so extravagantly? Why did their hearts stir within them day after day after day to give more and more and more away even though it didn't make any sense? Because they had been given a compelling, ravishing vision of a God who is gracious. They had experienced the forgiveness, the mercy, the love, the compassion of this God. Why does an idol only inspire us to give an earring? Because it is a dead God. The living God, full of grace and compassion, when he grabs hold of a life, nonsensical gestures of love will flow out of us, including generous giving in response to what he has given to us. No idol can do that. I mentioned Blaise Pascal at the beginning, this French philosopher in the 17th century. He lived a rather wild life. He was a party animal, gambler, kind of a scoundrel. But then later in life, he experienced a pretty profound transformation. He began to give generously of his fortune. His friends must have been curious. As, as a philosopher, he didn't talk so much about logic anymore, but the limits of logic and the impulses of the heart, and this would have just been confusing to his scientific, philosophical friends, And they didn't have a clear explanation for it until after Pascal died. Because one of his servants was dealing with his master's clothing and he noticed that in the jacket that Pascal wore almost every day there was a piece of parchment, a paper sewn into the lining right over his heart. So the servant undid the lining of the shirt, pulled out the piece of paper, and this is what it read. In Pascal's handwriting it said, In the year of grace, 1654, on Monday, the 23rd of November, from about half past 10 in the evening until about half past 12. Fire. Big letters. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not the God of the philosophers and the scholars. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace the God of Jesus Christ. Pascal had a profound encounter with the living God, and it forever changed his life. And it began to well up within him nonsensical gestures of love, including generosity from a man who before had been selfish and self-consumed. In Exodus 35 and 36, we read over and over again that their people's hearts were stirred. They had a profound encounter with the love and grace and mercy of God, and it transformed them. Remember, this story began when they were slaves in Egypt. In Egypt, they built temples to gods, but they built them because they were forced to. They were whipped and beaten and enslaved. They were required and compelled to build temples. And here they are out in the wilderness and they're building a temple, a tabernacle. But there's no whips. There's no compulsion. There's no external force. The desire to build this temple comes from within them to the point where they have to be restrained If you've been in the church any length of time, no doubt there have been seasons where you have felt like you've been compelled, externally forced, guilted into giving. Feeling like, well, I should do it. I have to do it. I don't want to, you know, get a call from a pastor or something like that. There's a reason why Paul says in the New Testament that God loves a joyful giver. Because properly understood, the The call to give, it's not under compulsion. It isn't, well, you give 10% and then you keep 90 and you have to give 10%. There's none of that in the New Testament. Why? Because what God cares about is not the giving. It's the reason for the giving. It's because you've encountered him so profoundly. You've known his love and his grace so powerful that your heart is stirred. Not just to give 1%, 2%, 10%, 15%, but to go back every day and recognize what God has given you and out of love and joy for His presence in your life to give more, not just financially, but to give of your time, of your energy, of your wisdom, of your life, out of an overflow of what God has given to you. And it doesn't have to make sense. Love rarely does. We're talking about nonsensical gestures. So, how do we become that kind of person? How do you become that kind of church? How do we find the power to live differently than the mundane, idolatrous lives we see here in the suburbs? It happens when we have a profound encounter and ongoing communion with the living God. It isn't just about getting onto a mountaintop or having some great experience at a church or a conference, but the ongoing, indwelling presence of God. And we don't merely give because a sermon was great or a worship time was wonderful or a program was impactful. We give because we live day in and day out with this God whose presence is with us and who provokes us to nonsensical gestures of love because He has so nonsensically chosen to love us. That's the mark of a church to die for. Let's pray.